Hello again, and thanks for listening today. This is Stepping Into Freedom, the podcast about standing fast in the liberty wherewith we have been made free from Alma 5840 in the Book of Mormon. This episode is going to be super fun. Um, despite the whole COVID shenanigans all over the world, we get to be here in the home of C. David Belt. <laughs> uh, you're tenor or bass for the Tabernacle Choir? Baritone. Oh, bar- oh baritone. First, awesome. first bass, essentially. Oh, okay, cool. So this is super special down here in Springville, uh, in in his home. And there's a funny thing to mention off here. The, the first when we were first, uh, I first messaged you. I was like, so not only is he like, we, we get to meet someone in the Tabernacle Choir, and I'm like, he has these awesome novels. The funny thing is, I have never been a huge fan of horror, but then I heard from I don't remember who told me it was like, yeah, but but it's it's all about how the Savior overcomes fear, and I'm like. You know what? I think I might actually be willing to read some of those, <laughs> even if I'm not a horror fan. Like that sounds kind of cool, actually. So. My uh, standard of writing <laughs> is that my mother has to be able to read it, oh. <laughs> and she is not a horror fan. So yes, there are scary bits, but the stories are ultimately about the atonement of Christ and agency. That's a big theme, and redemption. Uh, so I'm writing stories that are no more gruesome actually than some of the stuff in the bible in the book of mormon <laughs> wow yeah that's really cool so um for today's uh story i, I know you uh for our listeners you had uh, kind of went over with us a little bit before this um talking about the, the your struggle to like uh, with you know, the whole musical thing and uh, hearing some difficult things in church and uh, that kind of guiding your path to, to trying out and not being sure if you make it into the choir and um, seeing the Lord's hand in that and guiding you through that hard process. So, um, do, you, do you mind to go ahead and well, actually first? Why don't we get to, you're willing to give more of a I guess more of an introduction to yourself to our listeners than I have. <laughs> I'm uh, as you know, I'm a member of the Tabernacle Choir. I have been for 13 years. Um, I am at retirement age, so when the choir begins, resumes uh, in-person rehearsals and broadcasts, uh, I will have one final broadcast and that'll be it, I'll be retired. Um, I am a uh, a father of six children, Uh, my wife is the love of my life we we were married in the in the uh, Los Angeles temple 16 days after I was finished with my mission oh wow and about a month after she was finished with hers whoa yeah I when 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 I proposed to her and she before I left on my mission she says I'm not waiting <laughs> and I said well you don't have to wait you could go on a mission you're, you're just a little older than I am you're, you're old enough to go and she said I'm not going to go on a mission. Only girls that can't get married go on missions. <laughs> and I said, well, why don't you pray about it? I don't want to pray about it because I know I'll have to go. <laughs> and she prayed about it, and she went a little, you know, a little after I went, and she got back a couple weeks before I did, and um, we got married. I, in fact, I was interviewed for my recommend for uh, temple sealing by my mission president. Got wow. the recommend from him, and um, 
we were married um, 16 days, which was about 14 days too long, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> after, well, it took a couple days to make sure we were still the same people and <laughs> the same goals and all that. Do we still mesh? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, <laughs> we have, we'll be celebrating our, um, what is it, the 29th, see, 81, uh, 39th, uh, wedding anniversary this year and next year we're going on a cruise to uh, the Baltics oh nice and we're going to be celebrating our 40th wedding anniversary wow. going on a cruise yeah, so did, did, did you see what temple it was in I forget or did Los Angeles oh okay oh, Santa Monica it's my favorite dang it <laughs> yeah um, wow so uh, I'm a former B-52 pilot in the Air Force, and oh, I have wow. some stories about that. I bet you do. Um, that are that are faith related, and um, I'm a software engineer. I have worked for the church for a couple of years as a contractor. I've had a long and varied career. As you write, know, I write Latter Day Saint horror novels. Um, uh, I've had a wonderful life with many ups and downs but <laughs> I'm well grateful. as I say the Lord's the way the Lord's plan works usually the ups and downs are what's supposed to make it great so, <laughs> so awesome wow oh, I'm sitting here thinking I almost want to come back and get a story from your time <laughs> serving our country wow well I might I might tell you that one yeah wow so yeah go ahead and if, if you would go ahead and begin with uh Kind of how the your journey to the Lord guided you to this struggle towards being in the the, the choir. Well, um, before we moved to Utah, uh, we were in a stake in another state, and um, actually back up just a little bit. Growing up, I saw a lot of people leave the church. I saw a lot of people leave the church because they were offended. And in some cases, I saw the offenses, and the offenses were great. And I made up my mind as a young man in southeast Missouri, where I lived for two years, that I would never allow another person to drive me out of the church. No matter how bad the offense, I was not going to let that person oh, that drive is, me out. That's such an awesome goal. Wow. That's cool. I mean, I saw branch presidents leave the church because of great offenses. Yeah, yeah. I remember a guy in, uh, I knew in Canada who was uh, who actually President well, then Elder Nelson had come to reorganize the stake up there, and they called this man to be a council state presidency. And I watched like maybe ten, fifteen people um, immediately just were so upset that this guy had been called as a councilor in the stake because of things he'd done as a bishop, mm -hmm. and uh, like like fraudulent stuff and so mm -hmm. people was walking up and getting out of the chapel oh I'll never come to church again they're like like there's people like verbally you know mm -hmm. there was a bit of a ruckus and President Nelson then Elder Nelson gets up and he's saying sometimes you just don't understand the Lord's you know choices but we still have to, you know, to exercise the faith to support them and then later they find out oh what he had done and his whole family left the church because they were offended that they'd been caught mm -hmm. so yeah. well so we were we were living in uh, another state, and we had a stake president who, um, let's just say that music was not his thing. He didn't 
understand or appreciate music. Just as an example, we, under the previous state president, had contracted, you know, as in purchased the royalties, uh, or rented the royalty, uh, rented the scripts and everything to do Fiddler on the Roof. He did not believe that anyone would want to sit through a musical presentation that was longer than 45 minutes. And we really struggled to get him to approve it's kind of a church activity, yeah. That kind of church activity. Sports was his thing, music was not. And um, it was wonderful production, by the way. He walked out at exactly 45 minutes, the one performance that he came to. But he was the Lord's anointed. So we were, we were in, ward, I was in ward conference, and he was there presiding at ward conference, and after sacrament meeting, he said, Brother Belt, can I speak to you in my office? And I said, yes, President. And we went into his office and he said, Brother Belt, would you be offended if I asked you not to sing in church anymore? Because when you sing, the spirit departs. And he said, and he repeated, when you sing, the spirit departs. A lot of things went through my head at that moment. A lot of them. I bet. Um, and it came down to this is the Lord's anointed. I don't have to believe that he's right on this. I just have to obey. And I said, no, President, I will not be offended. He says, well, then I'm asking you not to sing in church anymore. Hmm. And I said, okay. And um, that was very difficult for me because I love to sing. I was, gonna, I was actually going to ask you real quick, um, like that. Those, I'm guessing, a minute or so when he said that to you, can you can you identify something specific that kind of, I don't know, from maybe from your past experience or something that that kind of enabled you or empowered you to just be able to accept counsel like that? Well, number one was the my experiences as a, a young man in Missouri, watching all those people leave the church. Um, and I said, nothing is going to drive me out. Number two, and this is an Air Force experience, I was flying as a co-pilot. We called them pilots, the aircraft commander and the pilot. You would call it a co-pilot or first officer. I was a pilot on a B-52, and I had a new aircraft commander I'd never flown with. Now the B-52 is a very um, magnificent, it's a magnificent aircraft, it's going to fly for 97 years, 93 years, you know, does all these mag wonderful things. Takeoffs and landings are extremely dangerous in this aircraft. Oh. Okay. Um, and the, the brakes on the wheels are the weakest part of the aircraft. If you do a heavyweight landing with 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 um, a medium to heavy fuel load, you and you use the brakes. Well, you have to use the brakes to stop. But the B fifty two has a drag chute that is used on a full stop landing, meaning not a touch and go. Where you're not planning on, on taking off again. Yeah. And that is to take the heat off of the brakes, because the brakes will heat up so much that they have to bring the fire trucks out. To hose them down Whoa. or they will explode. Woo. Now, having said that, 
the drag chute is dangerous on an icy runway. Of course. If the wind catches the drag chute the wrong way, it can spin the aircraft, which means you all die. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> Let's not do that. <laughs> so you have to be prepared as the one not making the landing. If the aircraft commander is making the landing, if you're not, you have to have your hand ready to jettison the drag chute at a moment's notice. Okay? When it's icy. When they're icy conditions. Great. So I'm flying with this new aircraft commander. It's the end of summer. It's The runway is dry. I've never flown with this guy before. I don't trust him uh, yet. <laughs> I mean, not, not, not with my life yet. And we did a full stop landing. And the instant... And I and uh, and he said he gave the command for shoot, and I and I uh, deployed the shoot. We felt the tug of the initial thing catches, and he said jettison shoot. Whole bunch of things go through my mind. Number one, if I jettison the shoot now, we're not on an icy runway. We will have to have the fire trucks come out and hose down the brakes. Okay, so they don't explode. It's not icy. I don't know if I can trust him yet. And he just told me to do something potentially dangerous. I mean, potentially really dangerous. All this goes through my mind in the space of about half a second. But it came down to, he was the one with his hands on the controls. He's the one who has the big picture. He knows more about this landing that he's doing than I do. Because if it was me on the controls, I'm the one who knows what's going on. I can feel what's yeah. going on. And so he said, he's the man with the hands on the controls. So I jettison the shoot. Shoot jettison. Immediately it falls on the runway, which means they have to bring a truck out, pick it up, you know, because nobody mm -hmm. can land until it's off the runway and all of that stuff. And we taxied off, and, and he told the... Um, and he said, radio and tell them we're ready to need fire trucks. And I did. They knew that, but that was part of my job. And I radioed and said, we're going to need fire trucks. And we got the um, aircraft shut down, go do thrust shut down procedures, and take off our helmets so we can talk freely. The engines are off. And he said, and he said, do you know why I asked you to jettison the drag chute? I said, no, sir. And he said, I need to know if I could trust you when it came when we do an icy runway oh. landing. Whether you're gonna be the co-pilot who will argue with me and I have to jettison myself, or you're gonna follow orders and trust me. It almost reminds me of a Brigham Young story with uh, asking uh it was Ephraim Hanks, yeah, yeah. To shave. It's like you have a beard, why are you asking him to shave? Well, he's your leader. He has the whole picture. He's asking you to see what you're going to do. Yep. Yep. So I learned then, you trust the man with his hands on the controls. Yeah. And when that state president asked me that, I said, no, president, I will not be offended. Which wasn't exactly true. I wasn't offended, but I was hurt. And I didn't understand. I didn't agree. And I couldn't tell anybody about it. I told my wife. And, and, and as millions can see now from watching conference, you clearly, the spirit does not leave when you sing. <laughs> well, I, I went through, 
I went through a long time. Uh, ultimately, it was about a year and a half um, with a break. Um, I went about a, th a year, and um, we were, and it was it was a struggle because I couldn't tell anybody about it because anything no, there was nothing I could say that wouldn't undermine the state president. Mm -hmm. So people would say, "Brother, why aren't you singing?" And I said, "I I just can't." Right now. Yeah. Other people could have had their, their face shaken by that too, I'm guessing. So. Right. Well you don't you don't undermine this the state president. Not for that. Not for something yeah. that's just personally. Yes, you do something even if it's wrong, if you do it, it's on his head. Yeah. Well, it didn't fly in the face of scripture. And I know people say it's make a joyful noise to the Lord, but Paul also said a little wine for the stomach. And the Lord then later on said, No alcohol. So it doesn't matter what the reason is. A, a, a friend, uh, a boss of mine, decided, uh, you know, he drank decaf coffee. He was a Latter Day Saint. Drank decaf coffee, but when decaf wasn't available, he'd have a cup of regular. And when he went to get his temple recommend, because his daughter was getting married, he said, I, and when he was asked about the word of wisdom, he says, "Well, he told him that." He says, "But I can't believe the Lord keep me out of the temple for a cup of coffee once a month." And the and the state, uh, the bishop at the time said to him, "said You're right, brother, so and so. Um, Lord would not keep you out of the temple for a single cup of coffee once a month. Uh, that would be unreasonable. He'll keep you out of the temple for disobedience to a commandment you knew about. Yeah, that you covenanted to keep. Wow. He stopped drinking. Coffee. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so that's this." This, the, all this goes through my mind, and I said, no, President, I'm not be offended. And it was tough. And uh, about a year, the, the only person outside of my wife and the state president who knew what was going on was my bishop. And I'm not sure how he found out, but he knew. And he was a musician, uh, among, among other things. There we go. Um, he understood the value of music and its place in the church. And he... Um, one Sunday, about a year into this, was conducting Fasted Testimony Meeting, and it was his month to conduct and his month to bear his testimony he started off. And he bore his testimony and basically said, for his testimony, Brother Belt, you need to sing in church. He didn't go into the details. He just said, Brother Belt, you need to sing in church. It's like, oh. This is what the Lord yeah, wants yeah. you to do. And then he sat down, and then every adult who got up after that, every single adult who bore their testimony said, Brother Bell, please sing. And by the end of the meeting, I decided, okay, I'll sing, and I sang. And um, then um, that bishop was released, you know, five years is over, he's released, and we get a new bishop. And I didn't feel with the new bishop that I had permission to sing. So I did not. Now, I, I need to emphasize here, this had nothing to do with my temple recommend yeah. or, or serving in the church. This was just a, a restriction put on me by a state president that had nothing to do with anything else. And I went through this, me and the new bishop, and I stopped singing, and we're going six months like this and then they, the member of the bishopric asked me if we, he could 
interview me and you know he's going to extend a calling and he said brother belt um we're six weeks out from the primary program and the children know none of the primary songs none of them would you we, we we'd like to call you as the primary chorister just just for a while to rock get through a, this rock a hard said, place i said i have never turned out a calling in my life i don't believe in doing that however i need to tell you that while I will accept the calling, I don't know how to teach children how to sing when I'm not allowed to sing in church. And he said, what are you talking about? And I told him. It was the first time I'd told someone beside my wife. And he went to, he says, I'll get back to you. And he went to the bishop. And the bishop called the stake a member of the stake presidency. And the member of the stake presidency said the stake president would never do that. And then he called the state president, and the state president confirmed, yes, that's exactly what happened. And so he came back to, the bishop came back, and the bishop talked to the counselor, and the counselor talked to me, and said, the bishop, as far as the bishop is concerned, you sing in the ward. If the state president is in attendance, do not sing. But you have the bishops, while well, he's presiding, to permission to sing in the ward. So I, I was a primary chorister, loved doing it. It's not the first time I'd actually done it, but I loved doing it, got the kids ready. We, we um, had the primary program, everything was wonderful. Um, and I didn't stay in the calling long because that I was put in for a specific reason. Um, and then um, I took a job down in Utah and um, I moved down in, in November to start the job, and my family joined me in January. And I did no longer felt like I was under that restriction. I there was any part of you that's like, I can breathe again. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was like that. <laughs> and um, But this had one benefit that for me. I could honestly stand up in front of my kids and say, you don't have to agree. You just have to obey. And let the Lord deal with the rest. And let the Lord deal with the rest. And if, as, as your father, I'm going to tell you to do things that you don't want to do. And you can put that in the category of, these are things I'll never tell my children to do. You know, when you're a parent. Yeah. That actually went out the window with <laughs> my kids. So they, they, <laughs> that reminds me of, some of the, what I'd tell some piano students up in Canada. I'd be like, I'm going to ask you to do things you're going to swear in your life you can't do. And then you're going to come back and you're going to prove me right. Yeah. Yep. So I, um, so I had that benefit, but I moved down here and I was able to sing again in church and I sang enthusiastically. And we thought, you know, our first year down here, I might as well, you know, I'm never going to get this opportunity again. Who knows how long we'll be in Utah. And I auditioned for the Tabernacle Choir. I downloaded the audition packet. And it, it, there's these things you have to do. If you fill out the application, you have to make a, uh, an audition CD. And I did some research, and there was an article on the choir's website that said um, most people who pass the audition have their, uh, their audition CDs done in a recording studio. And I said, I can't afford that. And I, and I, I bought a $10 microphone hooked up to my laptop found out that the condenser mic on my laptop actually worked better than that so I recorded my CD on the laptop and um, it, it was hard it was a hard thing to do 
One of the things you have to do is sing first ver one verse of a hymn. You must hit the one key on the piano, sing that verse of the hymn, go back and hit the ending key, and you have to be on pitch. Oh, wow. The pitch hasn't dropped. <laughs> Let me just say, it took me many tries <laughs> to, get that, to get that to work. Uh, I got that done, and I, and I sent it in, and I was also told that you're going to audition five, six times before you're going to make it in. The maximum wow. age to audition is 55. You know, so, so, sorry, just real quick, something funny I, I thought of too when you mentioned the whole beginning and then hit the note at the end. Yeah. Um, reminds me, like, to, to kind of give listeners more of an idea how difficult that is, um, even when you're just trying to sound good enough for a ward choir, right? Mm -hmm. um, when I was a missionary um, serving in the, the Hamilton Mount Ward up there, we had a choir practice um, when Lorraine was the choir director before, like, this is long before we had ever become an item. Um, and there's a guy there, Malcolm Jameson, and he is this guy's brilliant musician, scatterbrained but brilliant musician. And uh, so he and I were there. We're both kind of hyperactive, you know. Everyone's like, keep those two apart. Don't let them sit together, right? And we there's a verse where Lorraine said, this verse is going to be a cappella. Please try to make sure you're on key when we go into the next verse. And it took us like like a few tries, maybe five or six tries. But when we finally got okay, we sang the last note of the verse, and okay, play the chord, and we were on, and Malcolm and I were just like, oh, what? what? We got it! And so, you know, we kind of got up from our seats to give each other a high five. Everyone's like, sit down, you two! <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yes, we know we got it. You were excited. Great, let's keep going. <laughs> it's difficult, so. <laughs> I, had a, I had an experience as a choir director. I was a war choir director <laughs> once, and, um, and we had a very small uh, choir with, you know, word choir talent, uh, average word choir talent. And I want to do this piece a cappella, and they and I was told by our pianist that is not it's not going to work. You're not <laughs> going to be able to hold pitch. Yeah. And we worked and we worked and we worked. And the Sunday that we did it, after we finished the the final chord, and everybody went to their seats, I walked right out of the chapel, went into the primary room, still humming in my head that final chord, and played it on the piano. We had dropped exactly one quarter of a step. Oh, but but only that. Nobody wow. in the in the in the ward was going to notice that, except for yeah, maybe yeah, yeah. a professional <laughs> musician or two. Wow, you know, who had would not sing in the choir, by the way. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, uh, so the audition was really tough, and I got it, and I got it sent in, and and then I got a letter saying you've passed the first level, and the next portion is a is a music theory test. And if you'll come down to the tabernacle, you can pick up a book. It'll be, you go through the lessons, the exercises in it, and if you can pass the the questions for the test are taken from the 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 final test at the end of the book. There's it's it's word for word out of there. If you can pass that, you can pass, and you have to pass with I don't remember eighty five percent or something like that. And I said I can do that. I I took theory when I was in orchestra in 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 junior high school, you know, and, I, and I, I could do that. And I took the book home and I studied diligently and I, I, I got the, took the practice test at the end, I got 100% on it, I can do this. And I went in for the test and they gave us the test and sure enough, all the questions were taken directly from there, boom, 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 boom. I was feeling really good and then they said, okay, we're going to take a little break and then we'll come back for the listening portion of the test. What? <laughs> Nobody told me about this, and there were a lot of people sitting there who were looking at each other, you know, 
Oh, oh, oh and the, the brother who administered the test, bless his heart, um, he's still, he, he just retired from the choir. He's still the seating chairman for the choir. Deep, booming bass voice. And he started the test by saying, most of you are not going to pass. You're going to, there are only so many openings. I know that there are four openings for bases. If you're not one of the top four, you're not going to pass. Good luck. <laughs> and, 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 so anyway, so we had the listening portion, and it was things like they'd play a, a series of notes, and then they'd play the same series of notes with a slight alteration. You had to mark the notes that were different. Uh, you had to mark what was different about them. Um, that reminds me of... Uh, um Lorraine's history class, music history, she'd be there for th like two classes a week, three hours each. And she'd say, they, I, I got so freaking sick of listening to Four Seasons because they'd ask you, they'd play three measures of the whole, the whole piece. What three measures are they? What instruments are being played? Like, oh, yeah, all that stuff. <laughs> I, I was terrified. It was, it was awful. Uh, and, and I got to the end, and um, I just... I was so discouraged, and I got in the elevator, and there was another brother who there who was who had taken the test at the same time, and he um, is a music professional. I did not know that at the time. I didn't know who he was, but I knew he'd taken the test. And we're both in the elevator, and we look at each other, and we just shook our heads, like <laughs> that was that was Brutal. not good, <laughs> and. Um, I, I went home, I was extremely discouraged, and a couple weeks later I got a letter said, you've passed the second portion, and the, the next portion is the uh, in-person audition. And this is what you need to prepare for. They gave me this, this hideously hard piece of, of music that you had to be prepared to sing, and you had to be prepared to, to start at any point, any measure in there, and you were gonna have a sight reading test, and you had to sing, uh, prepare him to sing as a solo, and you're going to sing in front of Craig Jessup and Mac Wilberg, and and um, one of the one of the choir organists will be there to give you a starting pitch, and and that's it. And I went in, and I did everything wrong. I have to tell you, I, when I want to, I can have a very big operatic voice, um, and I did that. And when I was done singing my hymn. And by the way, the people who were sitting outside said, oh, we, yeah, we could all hear you. <laughs> and um, I got done with that, and Craig Jessup smiled at me and said, that was very nice. Would you sing it as if you were singing with a choir? And I realized I had not done the right thing. <laughs> so I re-sang it, and, but there was a lot of vibrato in my voice. That's the, that's the, yeah, yeah. the tonal variation. And... Um, I didn't know. I didn't know that that you weren't that you were supposed to suppress your vibrato. That's one of the things that the choir, t the voice teachers that specialize in getting people ready to join to, to audition for the choir teach. I didn't know that. A lot of vibrato in my voice, and um, I walked out of there. Oh, oh, and the sight read. Holy moly! I got they they uh, they gave me something to sight read. The choir organist played with me. I knew I went down when I was supposed to go down and went up when I was supposed to go up. And that's all I could tell you that I did right. I don't know if I was on the right, <laughs> you know, right notes or anything. And um, and I, I, I came out of there and I said, I'm done. 
And um, game over. Then a few weeks later, I got a letter from the choir says you invited to join the Temple Square Chorale. I passed. And they said, you are not a member of the choir yet, but you'll be a member joining the Temple Square Chorale and the choir school. And that runs from January to April. And you must have 100% attendance. It meets twice a week. A single absence will, will disqualify you from being in the choir. Um, and at the end of this, you're going to be... Uh, you know that if, if if you pass at the end, you will be um, invited to join the choir. And oh, I was thrilled, but I was terrified. And I went <laughs> in, and the very first night, I'm in I'm in this choir school, and and we, the um, general manager of the choir gets up there and he gives a speech, and he says, "I need to make this very clear: you are not a member of the Tabernacle Choir. You will not be until this until this." Uh, this is concluded if you pass. Yeah. Okay, got and it. I'm guessing uh, they have ways of, you know, well, keeping track of every person or... I'll tell, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. <laughs> so, I'm terrified. Then Mac Wilbert comes in and he gets his... Was, yeah, it was Mac Wilbert. He was the associate conductor at the time. He came in and gave his little speech and uh, I was just so intimidated. And then there are 39 of us in the choir. In the, in the in the choir school in in this audition class, and um, I'm on the right side of the room, and then we were to stand up and introduce ourselves, and and say a little bit, and then they got one half of the room done. The first person to stand up was that brother who was in the in the elevator with me, and he said, "Hello, my name is Luke Howell. I'm from Australia, as you can tell. I'm." Uh, uh, I teach music history at Brigham Young University. I'm thrilled to be here, very honored to be here. And he sat down and I went, and he was intimidated by that test. And then the next person stood up and says, hello, I um, teach choral music at the University of Utah. I'm so honored to be here. Every person on that side of the room was a music professional. They were voice teachers. They were um, composers. Wow. They were professional choral conductors they were professional singers wow by the way Alex Boyer was in that my class oh geez <laughs> he wasn't there the first night he actually got an excuse if, 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 if you got, did touch with him soon I've been trying to get a hold of him for ages to get him on this show so. well he's tough but anyway <laughs> I believe it he we got they got through the whole half 20 people <laughs> and then it was my turn on on the other side and I stood up and said Hello, my name is David Belt. I'm a soft. I'm a computer program. I'm a no. I I am a video game programmer, <laughs> and they laughed because I was the first one to not say I'm a composer or blah blah blah. Yeah. And I said, and I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm freaked out of my mind. Wow. And I sat down. Out of our class of 39, six were not music professionals. I was the first one to say that. Ooh. But of the other five, all of them were accomplished musicians in their own right. Composers, arrangers, played the piano, you know. And then there's me. I hadn't done anything since high school choir. Um, and had been restricted by the state president. And, well, there's that too. <laughs> and I got... and. 
choir school's going along, and the very first night, the very first night of the school portion of it, they're teaching us, you know, the theory of of how you identify the the key that a piece is a hymn is written in, and you know, I knew the rules of counting the sharps. Yeah, I remember, the I remember actually going through that in college myself. Yeah, there's a there's a piece on the, both, there's a both, both ways. Yeah, you can figure it out. Yeah. And while I'm still counting the sharps and flats, everybody's raising their hand and saying what it is. Okay? I was... I don't know what I'm doing here. Mm -hmm. And, um... Boy. Okay, just for our listeners, because just from a... Someone who's... Both of us have been through that training, Mm -hmm. figuring that out, that piece of the theory, going background. Just for our listeners, when you're trying to figure out the key signature, like, by just... Okay, if you have, like, one sharp, you have a few options. It's either going to be G major... Or like most commonly, either going to be G major or E minor, and you have to figure out which one it is by looking at the notes in the song, kind of going reverse order by oh, oh wait a minute, this is what, what is it really, right? Mm-hmm. So that the more sharps and flats you have, naturally, it can be more difficult to figure that out. Yeah, yeah. It, but there is a rule, and the correct answer that would have been taken was uh, G major. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if it has one sharp. Yeah, and to be honest, in the hymn book, there aren't that many key signatures. It's mm-hmm. it's actually fairly yeah. Yeah, simple. They, they, simple I, yeah, going through that, you can look carefully. You can see there's like like five or six. Yeah, maybe. yeah. Most of them are in are in four keys. Yeah. Anyway, I didn't know that. Um, I, I I was so discouraged. Um, we one day uh, I was in. I, I had gone out for a personal voice assessment. Uh, oh, I was just convinced that someday I was going to be there, and someone was going to come and tap me on the shoulder and say, "Brother Belt." Would you come with me and take me out into the hallway and say, "We've made a mistake. Thanks, but no thanks." Oh boy! I was so I, I expected that all along, and we're going along, and we're we're three three and a half months into this, coming up on the final exam, and uh, somebody came and tapped me on the shoulder and said, "Brother Bell, would you come with me?" Oh no! <laughs> and I got up and I went out, and I and I was I knew exactly what they were going to say, and they says. Um, we need to take you for a personal voice assessment. Well, maybe that was another way of saying we made a mistake. You do. No, they were doing that for everybody. I got in there and I did the personal voice assessment and I had never had a voice lesson in my life. I never have. I was given some tips there, um, but I was doing some things wrong and I was really discouraged and I walked out of there and we were in the conference center at the time because the tabernacle was being renovated. We... I got into the elevator, freight elevator, and Sister Wilbert, who is the, was at the time the choir's voice coach, um, got in the elevator with me. She said, "How you doing, Brother Belt?" And I says, "I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm, I'm terrified. I, I, everybody else is an accomplished musician, and then there's me, and uh, I'm just certain I'm, I'm done every time I come." She says, I, I, you're probably doing okay. So the next time we met, which was Tuesday, or th- I think it was a Thursday. That was a Tuesday. Got there on a Thursday. And Bonnie Goodliffe, who just recently retired as a part-time organist for the choir, got up, who was one of the teachers, she got up and she said, there's a misconception. You made it this far you are in, going to be in the choir if you don't do something egregious, such as missing yeah. one one night. You you're going to be in the choir. 
This is not a pass or fail test that we're going to be administering. This is to determine how much progress we've made and how effective we've been as teachers. If you think that we're trying to weed you out, we're not. It's just kind of a, a matter of like, you know, you basically already made it, just don't do anything really, really stupid. Well, they're trying to, one of the things they're trying to test, they're trying to teach you how to sing the way the choir sings. They're also trying to test whether or not you have the commitment to be there. And number two, will you learn music quickly? Yeah. Okay. So I guess that was... Because how many broadcasts do they do, right? It's like you got to be ready to... 72 performances a year on average. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and thousands of pieces of music. So, um, and I was, I'm sitting there listening to her say this and I, and I thought, you could have told this, this four <laughs> months ago. <laughs> And I and and I took the test. I, I I suppose I did okay on it. And then we joined the choir, and oh, I was surrounded by all these giants. You know, <laughs> I, I I felt the first time I got to sing the Battle Hymn of the Republic in a rehearsal. I thought I can die now. They can kick me out. <laughs> I got to sing Battle of the Republic with the Tabernacle Choir. It felt the same way when we sang the Hallelujah Chorus the first time. Just, it was wonderful. But I reflected on that. And the, oh, I also found out that the people, that the most people audition five times. Now they have limited it to three. You can only audition three times. But back then you could audition as many times up to age 55. I knew people who came in with me who had auditioned five times and got in at 55 at the very last chance they had. And they were better than I was. Why did I get in? I am convinced it was because I obeyed a state president who I didn't think was particularly inspired on that note because he was the Lord's anointed. Heavenly Father's way of saying, here you go. Maybe. I believe very strongly that because I was willing to obey even when it was hard and painful that I, the Lord blessed me. Now I'm not saying that I'm not good enough now. I don't think I was good enough then. I'm not saying I don't have a nice voice. I'm not saying I'm, I don't have some natural talent. But I was untrained. I was, um, <laughs> I remember one year uh, President Wilberg was talking to us and he said we just went through the young person auditions for the latest class and and the place where most people fall down there is sight reading you have to read sight read so much music and get it prepared very 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 quickly yeah that is absolutely essential and I went up to him after that rehearsal and I said, I remember my audition. I remember my sight reading. And I know I went up when I was supposed to and I went down when I was supposed to, but I can't say that I did any better than that. And he said, I remember your audition too. <laughs> and I went, oh, okay. <laughs> he said, you're here because the Lord wants you here. You're here because you're good enough. Now, let me tell you that he frequently says, none of us is deserves to be here. Being here is a privilege. Mm. 
There's so many people who are waiting to take your place. You have to be better. Anyway, so I do believe it was because of that. Wow. No, it's, I think of so many times where I heard of, this is before I got up to Canada, where um, I, I heard stories from several people about, you know, whether they, it was before they got to that, that Hamilton Mountain Ward or, or mm-hmm. after they got there, stories were just, you know, some of the things, oh, this bishop told me to do that, and this was wrong, or, 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 even, or even Lorraine, she told me there was one point where a, a bishop she had um, refused to help her out when she was on, and she couldn't work, um, was struggling making rent payments, couldn't figure out how to get, you know, on, uh, like the disability to, you know, work out in her favor and all this stuff, and she says, my, I, I can't pay everything I need to on my bills and get food on the table at the same time, I'm not doing well. And the bishop said, well, then you're just not trying hard enough. He wouldn't even help her. And so at the time, she's like, well, what am I supposed to do then? She left his office thinking, I, I'm done for. Um, but to her credit, I, I know she'd be the last person to ever go around spreading, oh, this guy did this to me. She just tried her best to accept it, even though she knew he was wrong. And she, like, the person she turned into, like yeah. even like Colette, I, I, I'm just blown away by the people the Lord has turned them into. And because they're going to do, like you said, just want to say, okay, well, I don't agree with this, but this is hard, but Christ will sustain me, so I'm going to do it. Yeah, and I do believe that. Um, I've, I've been in Bishopric, Bishopric, I've been in Elders Quorum President, I've been in many ward councils, I've been in many welfare councils, they don't call it that anymore, but, um, and I've listened to some of those decisions where they discuss a person's spiritual needs, a person's financial needs, and I've listened to bishops agonize over having to be hard. And I have been a home teacher, and we don't call it that anymore, but I've been a home teacher to people who were in that position where the bishop was denying help. And then he would say to me, Things like, never be alone with this woman for any reason. Um, she needs her transmission worked on. Well, I could work on her transmission. Her, you know, I could. There, there were things I could do. And he said, don't. She needs to pay for it out of her own pocket. Wow. Now, I came to learn things about that individual and he was right and he was a very kindly man but he came across as very hard and harsh to her for reasons that i suppose the lord knew what he was doing Mm -hmm. and then as i learned more about the individual i realized he was right Mm -hmm. um they kind of like trusting the person at the the, the controls like you mentioned trust the man with his hands on the controls he has the picture he knows what's going on he knows things that you don't know in that instant and jettison that drag chute if he tells you to. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would have been the person who was landing with someone more senior in the left seat. And they have trusted my judgment. They will never take the aircraft, the controls out of my yeah. hands during that extremely dangerous landing of the B-52. So I'm curious to know um, with this experience, um, with uh, the theme of the, the season being, you know, 
uh, I can do hard things and kind of identifying uh, how these hard things help us become more free. Um, if you were to pick something that, like choose something that this whole process helps you become free to do or free from negative influence, what would you identify that as? So can you tell the armor story? If you like. Yeah, okay. Well, this is, this yeah. is the thing. Yeah, yeah. Anything that illustrates, like, this is what I became free from or free to do. Yeah. Right. Um, I uh, spent my last two years of high school in Poplar Bluff, Missouri, and um, a very small branch of the church. Three members of the church in my high school, including myself. Wow. Four. Four. And Four how members. big was the high school? Mm. 2000. Whoa, okay. Or 1700. Between 5 and 600, and there was like 13 of us, maybe? Yeah, wow. Yeah, there, were, there, were, there weren't very many. And um, some of them would not admit openly that they were Latter day Saints because the persecution was that bad. Wow. Remember, where did you say this was again? Southeast Missouri. And it was oh, two okay. years after the... Or, excuse me, it was the year... It was just after um, the, 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 um, uh, the extermination order. Governor oh. Boggs' extermination order was finally rescinded. Wow. In 1976. Woo! There were a lot of people who had very deep, and, and there still are, there, a lot of people had very deep animosity toward the church. Some of it ancestral, I'm guessing. Some of it ancestral. Uh, the church was not allowed to own property in the state of Missouri until the order was rescinded. So the church would have to build chapels where they were purchased through other entities. Um, and the land was purchased through other entities and so on. That's some of the difficulties that we had. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, um, <laughs> I, I actually wrote a book. It hasn't come out yet. It's coming out this year. I hope. <laughs> uh, it's under contract, uh, which is auto, semi-autobiographical, and it's set in this period in that high school. Well, not that high school. It's in a fictional town. Yeah, yeah, Poplar yeah. Bluff is the rival high school. Anyway, <laughs> um, but it was semi-autobiographical, and I actually had a proofreader who said, you're, you're making this stuff up. This didn't happen. I said, well, everything happened except for the supernatural stuff. Wow. And the fact that the main character is a girl and I wasn't a girl. <laughs> uh, but uh, I said, yeah, all that stuff happened. Word for word, some of it. Um, anyway. So, um, I watched... The, the high school, almost everyone in the high school was a strong, very active, evangelical, or um, charismatic Christian. Yeah. The Pentecostals were big. The Assembly of God was big. The Baptists were big. Uh, they, everybody was involved in church. Um, but I remember the, the, the all-female choir from the high school was going to sing at a branch youth activity and parents refused to allow their children their girls to set foot in a Latter-day Saint church okay um, that's kind of a mild one good heavens anyway so um, 
I saw people in the church leave the church because of persecution, um, both internal and external. I saw um, my deeply devout religious friends as a as as a youth in the church i knew what the lines were yeah i knew this is the line you do not cross you cross it and you can repent but you do not cross this line and if you don't cross this line there are blessings and i knew what those lines were they also knew what the lines were. They had very similar standards in their church. No sex before marriage, no drinking, no smoking. Uh, and then they drank and they had sex before marriage. Many of them. My, I had a friend who was a, uh, his, he was a youth pastor. And his ambition was to become a youth pastor. I mean, a professional youth pastor. Uh, he, in high school, he was a, you know, a kind of a part-time youth pastor and uh, be over the singing and and he had a full ride scholarship to a prestigious uh, uh, Bible college where he's going to become a professional minister and then his girlfriend somehow got, became pregnant quote unquote somehow well <laughs> yeah but the thing was now he made the right choice he you know he had to lose he lost his scholarship obviously he lost his dream but he married the girl and he took the job at the gas station and as far as I know they, they were still married you know and that was that was the right thing to do but by growing up knowing what my limits were what the standards were and saying there is no gray area I know what the standards are but yeah but those are just guidelines no they're not guidelines they're commandments Mm -hmm. And when you know that that's the standard and you don't cross it, you don't worry about addiction. You don't worry about losing your cherished dream. Um, you don't worry about all the complications that come from sin. Now, I'm not saying I didn't commit sin. Obviously, I committed sin. But the, 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 the big lines I knew not to cross. So it almost sounds like you could almost kind of take an angle of freedom from worry with your experience. Exactly. Yeah. So a uh, um, couple of years ago, I'm writing a book set in first century Roman Britannia with a main character who's a Christian convert who's a... Who is is it a, this one? No, it's called The Iran Prophecy, that one. Oh, okay. Uh, I, but for our listeners, when I, when I, when I, you can't see what I'm just holding up here. The, the, he was very kind of when we came here today. This uh, book he gave us for free, The Whole Armor of God. I was wondering if that was it. But, yeah. and, and so I'm re re researching uh, first century Roman tactics, armor, um, weaponry, uh, military life. I, you know, I, I'm an I'm, I'm absolute stickler for accuracy. Cultural accuracy. Yeah. Cultural accuracy. Yeah. Uh, uh, I teach classes on medieval weaponry at writers' conferences, for example, where they get to hold the weapons and learn how they were used and say, please don't put a two-handed claymore into the hand of a 14-year-old female protagonist. <laughs> I don't care if she's super powered, super strong. It's too heavy and it's going to overbalance her. It's not going to make any sense for the story. Yeah. Well, it may look cool on the cover, but it won't work. <laughs> and, and they get to hold that and they get to learn and then they pick a different weapon. And they say, no, 
I don't care what you saw in the movies, even some of the church videos, the, the Roman soldiers did not hack with the gladius. It was a stabbing, it was a thrusting weapon. They were not even taught how to fight hand to hand. They've talked to fight in formation. Anyway, this is all very interesting stuff. So I'm doing this, I'm doing this research, and my mother suggested, why don't you combine what you're doing with uh, the symbolism in the whole armor of God analogy? Because Paul was a Roman, and this was these. This is what the Roman, the people of Ephesus saw. They saw a Roman legionnaire in the streets. So this is a symbolism, and we miss that when we when we picture something else. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the pieces that struck me was the breastplate of righteousness. Now there are three types of Roman chest armor in the first century. You have the lorica hamada, which is chain, what some people call chain mail, but it's not worn by a legionnaire, it's worn by a, 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 a conscript, a man who's been forced into the army. These men don't patrol the streets of Ephesus because their loyalties to the, to the empire are suspect. There's the lorica musculata, which looks like it's got nipples and a navel and, and a six-pack <laughs> and things to hang your cape on, and it's made of bronze and... You can't move. It's, or do- it's doctored up. Yeah. Yeah, it's doctored up. You could, and it was mostly worn by senators, uh, old men who could be skinny or fat or whatever on the inside. Uh, gods are depicted wearing this. Uh, generals might wear it for for ceremonial purposes, but not to fight in. The, what they fought in in the in the latter half of the first century is called the lorica segmentata, and it's made of overlapping plates that are laced up the front and laced up the back. And plates that go over the shoulders, and and, and uh, this is flexible. You can move in this. You can turn somersaults in this, and it provides wonderful protection and great flexibility. But it's held together on the inside by leather straps and rivets, where none but you and God can see. And it doesn't matter what it looks like on the outside. After every battle, you have to take the breastplate. Of righteousness off and look for every every rivet every strap and make sure they're not damaged or weakened if they're damaged or weakened it doesn't matter what it looks like on the outside it will fail you in combat the next time so you have to take it to the Fabri these are the engineers quote-unquote the Lord well I'll get there yeah you have to take it to the Fabri they can repair it for you and they will repair it for you. They'll do it very quickly. They'll help you through it. But you don't have the tools or the talent or the skill to repair it. Even if you did have the skill and knew how it was done, you can't afford to carry the tools with you. You're marching 20 miles a day in full armor, in full gear, with a goat's, with your portion of a goatskin tent over your shoulder. Wow. 20 miles a day. And if you're expected to go fight someplace, 40 miles, and you're expected to be able to fight at the end of that march, okay? So you don't carry anything. You don't have to. So they can, they, the Fabri will repair the, the breastplate for you. So the breastplate of righteousness provides you with great protection, but also great flexibility, and it requires constant vigilance and maintenance. And it can be repaired, but not by you. Only can be done by the Lord. So 
this is what I take away from this is that being obeying the commandments gives you flexibility. You don't have to worry about addiction. You don't have to worry about the consequences that come with sin. But you slip up or it gets damaged or you get damaged. You know, some things are inflicted on us by others. Yeah. It can be repaired, but you can't do it alone. There's and only one cases, who can it, repair it. But the symbolism you mentioned here, that's just one more, one more angle you can take to say, you are, really are free from worry. No matter what happens to you, you're free from worry of the, you know, the end result. At least the parts that are covered yeah. by <laughs> the breastplate of righteousness. Yeah, yeah. Abinadi got up on that wall, and I don't... I mean, Abinadi. Samuel got up on that wall, and I don't think he knew that those yeah. arrows wouldn't, and stones mm -hmm. wouldn't hit him. But he wasn't worried because he knew who was in control. Well, I think he, he knew that he was doing the right thing, and even if he did die... Mm -hmm. It would be in the Lord's service. Yeah. Abinadi didn't... I don't think Abinadi knew when he went back the second time mm -hmm. under death threat to preach that he would survive and be able to dandle his grandchildren on his knee. He's my absolute favorite, so I love that you mentioned that. Yeah. Like, Yay, Abinadi! But he did it anyway. That part is like, don't touch me, I'm not done. <laughs> <laughs> now you can touch me. <laughs> <laughs> but remember what happens to you, me happens to you. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man, wow. So, I mean, it, it gets in here talking for hours about <laughs> about the whole, um, you know, freedom, like, just ways that freedom from worry just isn't, you know, such a blessing when times come and just things are hard to understand and, um, you know. Well, I don't want to take away from people who have had choices taken away from them or people who have slipped. Mm -hmm. who have committed grievous sin. Mm -hmm. He's still there. It can still be repaired. Mm -hmm. um, and none of us is invulnerable. It's a matter of who do you trust. Well, you trust the Lord. Yeah. You do not trust in the arm of flesh. Yep. Because bishops will fall. Stake presidents will disappoint you. You will be offended. But you must trust in the Lord that He's in charge. Mm -hmm. And that He knows that in the end, even if you get burnt and suffer death by fire in His service, that you will be saved. Okay. Totally. Wow. Um, so one last question here. Is there anything for any of our listeners who are struggling with a similar... Uh, challenges that you face with uh, church leaders or with people who, um, <laughs> as Hubie Brown, I think it's Hubie Brown might say, uh, loved you enough to hurt you with yes. the current bush, right? Yep. Um, uh, people who are struggling with that right now, um, maybe who are just uh, maybe having a hard time coming to terms with the fact that, you know, the Lord is, is at the controls and he calls who he will to teach us something and help us become better. Maybe people who are having a hard time getting to that point, to come to that understanding in their hearts. So, what advice would you give them? No matter what is taken from you, whether through your own actions or through someone else's actions, the Lord is still there and you still have a choice. He, when I say He is there, He has sustained me and 
helped me through some things that were very, very difficult. He helped you do and those. Even when you can't see him, yeah. even when you feel lost and hopeless, I write about this in my books. This is a big theme. Even when you are clawing through the darkness and you can't see the light, he's still there and he never walks away from you. And he will be there. And at the end, you will get to the end and he will say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. Yeah. Funny that you mentioned that too. It's, um, was it a few chapters ago? I think uh, Colette and I were in our, in our studies of the Book of Mormon together a few chapters ago, over like, like four or five times, I think, in a row, throughout a few verses, he mentions entering into the rest of the Lord. And I'm like, thinking about what, what does the rest of the Lord mean? Well, in, in the sense of this episode, um, you really can be completely free from worry about what's gonna happen to you in the long run because like you just mentioned here, you know, you, you, you trust that the Lord is in control, um, that he is going to make all things work together for your good. Um, there's, the, the Spirit's gonna guide you and he's gonna be there in ways you can't even imagine. And he works through imperfect ser servants. <laughs> we are all imperfect. Yeah. I don't believe that President Nelson knew the pandemic was coming. But the Lord revealed to him before the pandemic all these things and put them in place so that we could continue and operate as a church in spite of all of this. Mm -hmm. The whole home church, the Come Follow Me program, being able to get married um, outside the temple and being able to get sealed as soon as the, t the temple reopens without having to wait a year. Um, the Lord was at the controls the whole time. The Lord was at the controls the whole time. And even though you may not see it, He does. One more thing, if you'll allow me, from that analogy. Sure, sure. The Romans had a shield wall. I'm not glorifying the Romans, by the way. This is just, <laughs> this is just the imagery that Paul was using. Of course. The Romans had a tactic called the testudo. It's a shield wall where they're completely walled off. That's like that, that scene in uh, Facing Giants, Build the Wall. Listeners, watch that movie. You'll get more of the parallel behind that, too. And it is done. It, it, it's, it's actually this, this, this great tactic where the front line has to bear all of the brunt of the attack. But the man behind him is standing with his feet braced and is holding his shield, but his hand braced on the back of the man in front of him. So that when the wave hits... You don't move. And it keeps going back all the way back. Reinforcements, yeah. Yeah. And if a man falls, you move up and you take his place. You plant the shield where it's supposed to be and someone braces you. Oh, wow. That's so cool. It reminds me of, um, have you ever seen Ender's Game? No, I haven't. So there's a, there's a part see, in the end that that reminds me of. And it's like they, this, they, they train these kids to come up and fight this war against these, mm -hmm. these aliens that come, right. come years earlier to attack Earth. And they train these children to come up and be generals because, oh, the children have this increased sense of, you know, tactics and battle strategies with mm -hmm. their, if you train them in gaming, the adults can't possibly have because they're, they're kids, you know, their brains are different. And so this kid at the very end of the movie, he pulls this, this tactic to try and defeat these aliens that 
the, the adult commanders who are trying to train these kids, he, he's crazy, what's he doing? He's using all the, the little tiny fighter ships to, to create a heat shield as mm -hmm. they go towards this alien planet um, as, like, as a heat shield and a, a kind of a, a barrier between this big, huge, multi-billion dollar gun. They're going to fire mm -hmm. the planet and destroy it, right? And uh, all of his sub-commanders in the movie are saying, what are you doing? We're, we're, you're, you're driving right into the swarm of them. He goes, yes, I know. For layers upon layers upon layers, you know, these, these, these ships you know, make them move around it in this, this specific formation. You know, we're going to burn up when we hit the planet. That's fine. The ships are our heat shield. And when one would you know, explode, he's like, keep going. We've got backups. We've got backups. Just like in the, the same formation mm -hmm. of that, those, those shields, right? It's like, and it worked. In the end, it's like, you know, I won't ruin the end of the movie, but they, they find victory and it's it just the, the imagery in my head is like, oh, it's the, the, the same type of thing. The Lord provides us backups if we follow his servants. But you know who controls all the backups? You see, the thing is, <laughs> Paul's talking about the shield of faith to, to quench the fiery darts of the adversary. Yeah. A Roman dart is not what you're thinking of. It's an extremely deadly, nasty weapon. Not that we'll poke your eye out, but we'll go right through your helm. Ooh. Right through your armor. Whoa. Okay. And the shield of faith, this, 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 this shield wall is the only defense against it. But why is it called the shield of faith? Because behind that shield wall, you're blind. You can't see anything. You can't peek because those little holes mean that those darts can come through, but you can't hear them coming. Not like an arrow. You can hear the bow twang. The dart made no noise. And if there's a hole there, they'll, they come en masse. Yeah, yeah. And they'll go right through, and somebody's going to die if you peek. So there's one man who stands with his head above the shield wall, at the back of the formation, with a great big red plume going this way, big, great big, big red target on his head. Like, it kind of goes left and right, yeah. Yeah. And he's the centurion. He is the one who has the right to command. And he is exposing himself to the arrows and the stones, and the spears, and the darts. And you must trust his voice explicitly. If you don't, if you peek, men die. When he tells you to do something, he tells you to move, lower the shields, part, and stab, you're relying on him having that big picture. Mm -hmm. But he's the one putting his Symbol life... Yeah, symbolically like the Holy the Ghost. Savior, like the Savior. Yeah, yeah. He's putting his life on the line so that you can live. But, you know what happens if he does fall? There's a second in command who wears a plume that goes like this. And he's called the optio, or option. Okay, the word literally means chosen one. He is the chosen second in command of the centurion. And any man in the, in the unit can be chosen at any time. And he wears the plume that goes front to back. If the centurion falls, the option stands in his place and exposes himself in the name of the centurion. And guess what? Unlike democracy... Or, or a republic where you elect someone to represent you. He doesn't represent the men. Okay? The men might bring complaints to him, but he represents the centurion. He does the will of the centurion. When the centurion falls, he does what he believes the centurion would have wanted. 
he faces the way the Savior faces. The priesthood leader faces the way the Savior faces. And he's imperfect, but he's doing it the best he knows how, trying to be guided by the Spirit, and he will make mistakes, or he may misinterpret something. But if you follow him, you will be blessed, and you will be free. I really believe that. I believe the only reason I made it into the choir at all, and especially on the first try, was because <laughs> I obeyed a stake present. Yeah. And I am grateful for that challenge. Yeah. As far as it was, uh, was it uh, Elder Worthland? Come what may and love it, right? Yeah. Wow. Well, good advice there. Awesome. Really cool visuals. I go back and watch Ender's Game now. That was such a good movie. <laughs> um, but um, thanks so much for listening today, everyone. Um, if you particularly enjoyed this episode, uh, please go give that follow button a click on paulpulsiver.podomatic.com. Uh, put a link to some of uh, David's awesome literary work in the description here. So that'll be fun. Um, if you found something particularly helpful for you, in this episode, or maybe want uh, to spread that to family or loved ones who maybe need a faith boost right now, some light in their life, please go give this a positive uh, review on iTunes, Stitcher, and Facebook, um, and share this with uh, anyone you know and love who uh, needs some spiritual light in their day, some of the strength of the Savior with them. Uh, so remember to stand steadfastly in the freedom God gave us. Until next time, this is Paul Pulsifer. <laughs>